And we are continuing, to put it in the terminology that we heard this morning, the Old Testament exchange. Why did God choose to institute all these sacrifices for his people Israel? Answer, so that they would understand the concept of imputation. Their sin imputed to this sacrificial animal. The animal's uh, basic uh, non, oh, how you would, how would you say, is uh, perfect physically, then bore the sinner's sin, and God imputed righteousness to the Old Testament believer. You say, but it was done over and over again. You, you have to wonder, maybe that's because Israel was not real receptive spiritually. They had problems, lots of problems, just as we today have problems, lots of problems. But whether God chooses to govern his people through the law and then sends Christ to fulfill the law and today governs the church through the sinless righteousness of our Savior and the gospel and the church, it's all a part of God's program because his character never changes. Aren't you thankful for that? That God is the same today, yesterday, and forever, and that we're not going to die and stand at uh, the judgment seat and have the have our Savior say, how is it that you could end up in glory? And we would say, well, I'm, I'm trusting in your shed blood. And he would say to us, sorry, that was yesterday. Today it's different. Oh, no, no, no. It's always the same. Our Savior has always been and always will be holy, harmless, undefiled, without any sin of his own, and yet our sin was imputed to him. And that's the very same thing we're looking at at the book of Leviticus. We are looking at how God's plan for his people is that they might dwell with him, the holy God, because of the program, the, the methodology of sacrifice. And this was to train them over and over again in the concept that I am a sinner and my sin has multiform aspects to it. Sin adheres to me. I can't get rid of it by myself. But God graciously made provision. So when the ultimate provision came and our Savior came into the world and died on Calvary's cross, his people should have realized, oh, here is the one who is taking my place in sacrifice. He's holy, just as that animal was unblemished. And now, through faith in Christ, 
Now my sin is paid for once for all. Wow. And yet, very few, very few of the chosen people put their faith in Christ. And then, in God's plan, the gospel was made uh, available to Gentiles. Oh, it was always possible for Gentiles to become proselytes and and, uh, sojourn in Israel and participate in the gospel for the Old Testament believer. But now, we who were aliens from the covenants and, and, and kingdom program of God, we have been grafted in. And Israel, through unbelief, removed. But one day, all Israel will be saved. And that's what we're looking for. All right, now, we're back to the purification or sin offering. We've said last time we can think of this as the de-sinning offering. Uh, So, chapter 4 shows us that everybody needs this purification or sin offering. So, we're going to look at four classes of individuals. The high priest... You say, what? The high priest, he had sinned, that he had had to uh, atone for and confess? Oh, yes. The entire nation, a leader of the nation, or an individual Israelite. Okay, so let's take a look at these sequentially. The way Moses structures the chapter seems to progress from the worst category, the sins of the high priest, to the least category, sins of the individual. Although ultimately, of course, sin is sin. And it doesn't matter who commits it, it's all sin. But from our perspective and from God's perspective, those who are the most accountable human beings, that is, those who lead God's people, are therefore uh, judged in, a, in another higher category. Note the importance, I say, of the purity of God's leaders. Uh, A verse that comes to mind, for instance, here is James 3.1. What does that tell us? Anybody know? Can you quote it? Let not many of you become what? Teachers. Why? For Teachers are going to uh, basically be held to a stricter examination. They're all the more accountable. For 33 years, I taught Bible, uh, undergrad, and then Old Testament interpretation in seminary. And during those 33 years, I'll tell you what, I... Every day, I'd go, well, not every day. There are some days when I was just too much in a hurry. But most of the time, I would begin the day praying that the Lord would help me not to say something that would lead anyone astray. I had to be prepared 
the, the most horrendous thing to me was to have students in one of my classes get bored senseless over the Bible. What worse thing can you think of than that? Now, some of you former students might say, well, I don't know you all are that, always that good at that, Dr. Yagley, but uh, yeah, <clears throat> I tried. The Lord helping me, I tried to be enthusiastic and well-prepared, but also to teach the sense of discernment for the students who sat in my, cl- sat in my class. Some of them weren't listening too carefully. They, they graduated and made a mess out of their lives because that's what can happen when you don't have full awareness of just exactly how serious every decision we make in our lives truly is. Every decision we make day by day has a cumulative effect, and what we decide is ultimately what we become. And the concept of discernment, I've had guys sitting in my seminary class, they graduate and they go out and they pastor perhaps contemporary Christian churches where they rock you in the aisles. It's a grief of heart to me. I, thought, I think to myself, how is it that I failed to build discernment into somebody's life like that? But I tried. I prayed, Lord, please work in students' hearts. Work in my heart. Because I know I'm going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ someday to receive what I've done, the reward or lack of reward for what I did with my life. But thank the Lord, it's, it's in his control. All right, let's talk about the purification offering for the high priest. Let's take a look at chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 3. This text says uh, the following. And what, by the way, here it's the high priest is spoken of as the anointed priest. Several classes of Old Testament leaders were anointed. Oil was poured on their head, special ceremony, and regular priests uh, were not the anointed priest. Only the high priest went through this. Kings were anointed. Prophets were anointed. All right, so that's who this is speaking of here. This is speaking of the high priest. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people. How did that work? Well, by the high priest sinning, anybody who is observing this would say, oh, well, that must be okay. The high priest himself is doing it. And then he would then follow the high priest's example. It's kind of like the same thing with one of our pastors. If one of our pastors were to, were to start doing something 
that, that is sinful and enticing other people to do so. That would be a serious matter. All right, so this was, this was very serious. The high priest then brings the blood of the sacrificial animal into the holy place. Notice, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish. There's that concept we keep seeing it over and over that the sacrifice had to be without blemish. Obviously preparing God's people for the time when Christ would offer himself without blemish. All right, so then he brings this very expensive animal, a bull. A bull would grow up, the the word here is, is a young bull. He would grow up to be strong, able to plow fields. He would... uh, He would be uh, the one who would be uh, uh, mating with the cows and and, uh, making sure there were plenty of livestock in in Israel. This was a very expensive animal. And he would bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his head on the head of the bull. Ah, there's the concept of imputation. Imputation his sin being imputed to this unblemished animal, just as our sin was imputed to our sinless Savior. Okay. And uh, the priest, now verse uh, 5, the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So he's taking it right into the holy place. He's sprinkling the blood seven times before that veil, that veil that had woven cherubim on it, the veil that separated between the holy place, and the holiest place, the holy of holies. And then, what would he do? Verse 7, the priest would put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord. That likewise is in the holy place, opposite from the lampstand, the menorah, And he would pour the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at at the entrance of the tent of meeting. All right, so he would then uh, himself uh, manipulate the blood in places where God had commanded that it be taken. Why did he do this? actually by taking the blood into the holy place. I think to show the seriousness of his sin. Now, for the average person, the individual Israelite, uh, a priest would not take the blood into the holiest, uh, to the holy place. He would simply take the blood 
and apply it to the uh, altar of uh, the bronze altar outside the holy place because his sin was not of the same magnitude in God's sight. But unlike the peace offering, the high priest does not get to eat any of the sacrificial meat that was offered. It was all burned up, like the burnt offering. So this is not the same thing as a peace offering. Why? Well, because it was for the high priest's sin, and he got no benefit from bringing this expensive animal. And he had, they had to burn it all. He got nothing for himself back. All right, that's the high priest. Next, purification offering for the entire nation. Now, you might ask yourself the question, you know, how could the entire nation sin all at once? Do we have any model or example of how that would have happened in the not too distant past from uh, this instruction in Leviticus? The whole nation sinned all at once. From one of the leaders on down, oh, the golden calf. Yeah, this, this was something that the whole nation was culpable of. So, this sin also required a bull, and the elders of Israel were to place their hands on the bull's head. They were uh, to, I guess, all gather around this animal and uh, reach their hand in and push, push down on the animal. I don't know who it was who had the knife to to kill the animal, but this this was symbolic that, yes, the elders represent Israel. This happened on their watch, and so they are responsible. Then what would happen is the high priest would take blood into the holy place and do the same thing that he did for the sacrifice of his own sins. This likewise is very important. And here we see, once again, the leaders of God's people uh, bear the responsibility for representing well what the Lord's requirements are for his people. Any, anybody Everybody ought to recognize that leaders are the ones who ultimately influence the direction of a government, uh, the direction of a church, and collectively, if enough leaders of God's people of Bible-believing churches start doing and leading in the wrong direction, then folks, we have a real mess. And that's largely, I hate to say it, what's happening in Christianity in America, among God's people. They're being led astray. All right, so that's for sin of the entire nation of Israel. 
purification offering for a leader. Now we want to look down at chapter 4, verses 22 through 26. When a leader sins, verse 22 says, doing unintentionally any of the things that by the commandments of the Lord is God, the Lord is God uh, ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt. This, of course, is something uh, we looked last time at the concept of unintentionally. Yes, that's not a bad translation, but we have to realize that sometimes we don't intentionally sin, although we know what the requirements are for God's uh, people. And we might even say, well, I know what I'm doing. It's not unintentional, but I'm, I'm overcome by the temptation, and, I, and I'm weak. And I, and I get uh, into temptation here. I don't want to sin, but I do. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7. The very sin that I, I hate, I do. Uh, and that's our, that's our experience as well. So unintentional can morph over and include uh, sins of weakness. We know what to do, but we just don't want to do right. This is being covered as well. Now, how is it that he realizes his sin, his guilt? See, look, he does things that he knows are God's command. He knows that he's violating the commandments of the Lord as God. And then, apparently later, realizes his guilt. How does that take place? How does this realization happen? Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe uh, somebody points it out. All right. Some, someone comes along and says, Hey, do you realize what you've done? You, you didn't do right. And of course, that's a tough thing to do. But we can have a ministry like that with one another. And uh, if we witness somebody doing something that uh, is not right, we can point it out. Or the Holy Spirit might be bringing to uh, our conscience something that we did and had, which was a casual type of thing for us. We, we, we just fall into sin so, early, so easily. And then as we're meditating about the day later on, we think back and we think, oh no, I, uh, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. And then we confess it. We're not told exactly how he realized it, but thank the Lord he has built into each of one of us a conscience. And when our conscience is informed by the word of God, that's why it's so important to know the scriptures well, then we understand, oh, it's time to bring a sacrifice. In this case, the blood's not brought into the holy place. This now, because this is a leader, but not the high priest himself, uh, this is, once again, the blood is, is taken not into the holy place, but to the altar, the bronze altar, the altar of sacrifice. 
Then we have purification offering for an individual Israelite. All right, now let's start here in verse uh, 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by God's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, ah, there we are. Somebody points it out. He shall bring for his offering a goat. Now, it's not a bull, it's a goat. And for the, I forgot to mention this, for the leader, it was a, uh, a lamb, wait a minute, it was a what? Let's go back here and find out. It was a, it's a uh, male sheep, I think. Let's see, it was, let's go back. Uh, when a leader sins, he shall bring as his offering. No, it was a goat, a male goat. And here now, it's a female goat. All right. <clears throat> so he was required a female goat or also, alternatively, a lamb. Once again, none of the blood was brought into the holy place. It was placed on the horns of the bronze altar, and the rest was poured out at the base of the altar. All right, so there you have the four categories of people who uh, would need this purification off uh, sacrifice all the way from the high priest himself to the average Israelite. Everyone needs to be examining his conscience. Everyone needs to be open to loving uh, instruction by somebody else who would, uh, maybe even a a wife or a husband, pointing out something that the, uh, the spouse had done. We have this ministry to one another. And then the sacrifices required. And by the way, it's probably occurred to you well before now that this sacrificial system is incredibly detailed. Even though I studied this last week, I'd forgotten that the sacrifice for the leader was a male goat rather than a female one. Okay, so basically... The priests were going to have to be reviewing all this legislation, these commandments of the Lord, regularly, lest they they forget. And uh, you say, why did it have to be so complex? And that is because sin is complex. And the sacrifice for sin is complex. And everybody's included in it. And we see this over and over again in, the, in these Levitical stipulations. No one's exempt from having to bring these sacrifices. Overall conclusion about the purification offerings. Number one, God takes all sin seriously and does not excuse careless, uninformed, or casual sin. We have no excuse. But Lord, I just wasn't thinking 
you know, carefully enough before I did or said or thought that. No, sorry, no excuse. These sacrifices show there is no excuse for sin. During my tenure as a teacher, I would have students who would come in and they would ask for a special dispensation of grace based on some excuse. You know, we've all heard, my dog ate my paper. Well, I had a student one time came in and said, Dr. Yavely, just about the time I was going to print my paper out, the hard drive on my computer quit functioning, and I lost my paper. Can I have an extra week to get it to you? (laughs) Isn't that coincidental? Just about the time he was going to print his paper out, his, his hard drive is saying, okay, I've been waiting for this moment when I've got a function and I'll get this computer owner. I'll decide to give up the ghost right now. Yeah, right. And I said, I said to the guy, I said, boy, that's really coincidental that it, this would happen right at the wrong instant. I will grant you, although it's unlikely, it is possible, had you made a backup of your file, do you know what a zip drive is? Oh, yeah, but I, I just didn't think to make a backup. Uh, my, my hard drive always functions flawlessly, and uh, I just never thought to make up one. And I said, well, all right, friend, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt this time, but it is a flimsy excuse. A well-prepared student doesn't do things like you know, not back up files and things like that. I don't know how many times I got excuses that it's the computer's fault. I didn't do anything wrong. It's the stupid computer. Uh, and, of course, there's other things. Now, when a student came to me uh, or sent me an email on the due date of a paper and said, oh, Dr. Yegley, I've been sick the whole week long. And... I, I, you know, I just haven't had any energy to work on my paper. May I get it in late? Well, I'm not a heartless beast, contrary to what you might have heard. But uh, so, okay, let's take that into consideration. That is a valid excuse. But with the Lord, there's no excuse for our sin. No excuse at all. We need to confess it. The the ancient Israelite needed to bring a costly sacrifice. And we, in our new covenant, can be thankful for the broken body and shed blood of our Savior and for that being the once and for all sacrifice for our sin. Next, God takes all sin seriously. Does not excuse... I've already talked about that. Okay, See Second John one six. So let's talk. Let's uh, go to Second John. Of course, there's only one chapter, but verse six says this, and this is love, 
that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Okay? So we have commandments. It's not as if uh, the Christian life is simply antinomian, that is, without law, against the law. No. The same law that was in the Old Testament, now in principle form, uh, is is available for us and binding on us. And so every commandment except for the commandment to keep the Sabbath day holy is repeated in the New Testament. And many other commandments on top of that. A few years ago we had a church down in Anderson and there was a big a big deal made because the pastor of that church had said that there's no word in the scripture for commandment. He was preaching and telling, trying to excuse his people from paying attention to what the word of God says. And basically his conclusion was no such word as commandment. And of course he was set straight very quickly on that one. And since this fellow was a very high profile guy uh, in a very high profile church in Anderson, he immediately, this hit the news, and everybody was saying, what in the world, the guy's a pastor, and he doesn't know that, that there's an Old Testament word for commandment and a New Testament word for commandment, and the, and the Bible is full of commandments? That's crazy. How can you explain how somebody like that could do that? Well, he never had any theological training. His, uh, he was not... He was uh, tried to, I guess, excuse himself by saying, no, I, I, I just never went to seminary or Bible school. Well, anyway. Now, those who know the word of God the best are the most culpable. See, now, this is what, this is what really hits home. I, you know, ever since I decided uh, that the Lord's will for me was to uh, get out of my chosen profession and go to school and uh, study to serve him in full-time Christian service, I've just been studying my brains out in the scripture. This is, this is my life. I, when I was working as a process engineer, I longed for the day when I could have all day long to study the scripture. I'd get off of work, I'd go to my, to my home, study uh, my brains out, read the Bible, study the Bible, get some commentaries, but I'd study the Bible as best as I knew how. But you know, as wonderful a thing as that is, it doesn't make us less culpable, it makes us more so. By the way, New Testament believers have the assurance that we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. We have the assurance we're sealed by the Holy Spirit till the day of redemption. That glorious day when Christ returns and we get raised from the dead. 
We have the Holy Spirit living within us. Let me ask you a question. Does that make us more or less culpable than the Old Testament believer? More. We're we're way less without excuse when we sin. And so this is the reason why, one of the reasons why, we study the Old Testament. We see how God's plan through the ages is both the same and also has finer points of detail. So when we sin, that is all the more serious than it was for the Old Testament believer when he or she sinned. Any questions or comments about that? Has that dawned on us? That's one of the reasons you study the Old Testament. Not only did it have a foundation for understanding of New Testament doctrine, but as well to realize God's graciousness, his great grace to people of any dispensation. But it, it, it impacts us with a realization, oh, I'm far less without excuse than any believer in human history. Not only that, but we have the Bible in multiple versions in English. If you don't understand one version, well, then get another one. Read that. Uh, I like to read multiple versions. Uh, it, it's good. It's good for you. I, I recommend it. We also have numerous Bible study helps. Numerous in English. For instance, I have in my library four commentaries on the book of Leviticus. Okay, so I mean, I'm without excuse for reading somebody who studied his brains out in Leviticus for years and has become an ec- an expert on Leviticus, and he's written this wonderful commentary or this wonderful biblical theology, and I say to myself, nah, who cares? I'll just wing it on my own. Well, that's, that's crazy to think that way. And these things are available in many different forms, all the way from devotional commentaries to exegetical commentaries that are very, very technical. So wherever you are in your ability to handle technical details, there's a commentary or two or three or four just written for you. No excuse for not studying by, by making these things a part of your understanding. Other people in other countries who speak other languages other than English many times do not have this wealth of Bible study helps that we do. I can remember when one of my colleagues and I were teaching in Ukraine. It's been back 20 years ago now. No, not quite, almost. Uh, They basically 
didn't even have a concordance in Russian or Ukrainian. And that came out just after my, my colleague and I returned home to the U.S. And there was uh, several of our Ukrainian students came to the seminary and they translated Strong's Concordance into Russian. And it became available for the first time. And I heard a report that the first time these pastors, these Ukrainian and Russian pastors, got a, got a copy of Strong's Concordance in their language, many of them broke down and wept openly, just cried their eyes out because they finally had something that would enhance their Bible study ability. And we are blessed with so many Bible helps. We can, uh, the uh, shelves on your library can't hold them all. All right? So, just a, an admonition. Get some help. But realize that simply knowing more about the Scripture increases our culpability. We know more about the nefarious aspects of our sin than people who don't know the Bible well. So let's not congratulate ourselves that, oh, we know more than Joe Schmo down the road. No, that's not anything to boast about. That just means we had better be more careful how we walk. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for uh, your word and for the instruction of it. I pray that you will help us to rejoice that we have in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, an unblemished, perfectly sinless sacrifice, and that we, through faith in him, now have righteous standing before you. Thank you so much. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.